one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. We are back from our summer hiatus. Now, we realize that a lot of news has happened from sad passings to major milestones, including one that we will talk about later in this episode, but I should mention now that the Mars Science Laboratory, or Curiosity, successfully landed at Gale Crater on the surface of Mars, right on track, right on target, and right on time at 1.31 a.m., Eastern Time, much to the delight of everybody around the world, even after the 14-minute delay. So I should add that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later with our special guest. But first, let's introduce who's with us here today. Joining us today is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer, not a completely and totally bleary-eyed and not exactly bushy-tailed, but we've been up uh, watching Curiosity now for the past... Oh, 24 hours, it seems, but the, everything seems to be going well at this point, and, and let's just hope it keeps it keeps going that way. So congratulations, JPL, and, and, and go Curiosity. And also, we've got a great interview. Don't forget that coming up, too. Oh, but of course. <laughs> also joining us today is our fifth Beatle, Craftlass. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to be here. Indeed. Now... We have another person as well joining us tonight, a very special interviewee returning for the third time. Joining us again is a cool man. I'd go so far as to say he's a rock star. Joining us is the co-host of the Science Channel program Meteorite Men and is the author of two books, Meteorite Hunting, How to Find Treasure from Space, and his newest book available now, Rockstar, Adventures of a Meteorite Man. Please welcome back to Talking Space... Jeff Notkin, welcome back. Thank you, friends. I am thrilled to be here on a very momentous day in space history, I might add. Yes, indeed. And we are going to talk a little bit about Mars and Curiosity with you a little bit later, because I definitely want to hear some of your thoughts on that. We'll get to that. But I think the first thing that we probably want to get to is that Season 3 of Meteorite Men is done, and you have a memoir out now. I do. I've been writing like a madman. It was only February last year that my first book, Meteorite Hunting, was published. And I know we talked about that last year. And the memoir, which is called Rockstar Adventures of a Meteorite Man, was published June 1st. And I'm rather embarrassed to admit that I've been working on this book for 14 years. So, you know, they say you can't hurry the artist. Don't rush me. I'll finish it when I'm ready. <laughs> but but this this was the time. And I, I've been working on a series of adventure articles dating back before Meteorite Men, the television series, chronicling Steve's and my adventures around the world. And I had originally intended to just 
republish some articles I'd written for Meteorite Magazine and other publications during the 90s and in the early 2000s. And I thought, oh, that'll be easy. I'll just take these articles and fix them up a bit and republish them because they're all out of print and hard to find now. And then I thought, well, I should probably do a bit about my childhood. And then I started talking about the band days. And then, of course, there was the television show. And I thought, well, I better write something about Meteorite Men because if people buy the book and it stops in 2003, say, or 2005, people might feel that they've been cheated a bit. So I've had this really amusing uh, series of, of adventures that needed to be added to the book. And I kept going, oh, okay, just one more chapter. Oh, I'll do a chapter about season one. Oh, I'll do a chapter about season two. And then finally, at the end of season three, I said, I'm just going to publish the book now. Enough's enough. There are plenty of adventures and stories in there. And it the book and I both wanted to see it live. So perhaps there'll be a volume two later, but we'll, we'll worry about that next year. <laughs> you beat me to it. I was going to ask if there was a sequel or not in the works. Oh, actually, yes. And in fact, I had a phone call last week from, from a gentleman, from a customer of mine, from, from Aerolite Meteorites, from the, from the Meteorite company. And he said, you know, Jeff, I'm puzzled about one thing. You seem too young to have written your memoir. What, what if other things happen? And I said, well, first of all, thank you very much. Thinking I'm too young to write my memoir. Don't agree, but very kind of you. And then there's always there's always space for more. And my staff think I'm mad because the minute Rockstar arrived, once it was published and we started receiving the first copies, I go, oh, I've got this great idea for my next book. <laughs> and at first they thought I was joking. And then there was a lot of eye rolling and going, Jeff, just relax for a minute. Let's Let's take care of this book fill our existing orders, and then later you can think about the next one. But you know, I hate to be idle. There's so much to do. Hey, Jeff, just as, as a follow-up, because that was actually one of my questions for you. Um, you are, in my opinion, way too, be, way too young to be writing a memoir. Uh, what, what was the impetus to go ahead and, and say now was the time? Because you, you had mentioned that earlier uh, before in, in the discussion. What was the impetus to say that you know, now was the time to go ahead and get this out? I think part of it is 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 definitely the Meteorite Men television show. And, of course, there's been a lot of new interest in meteorites in general and in our work in particular as a result of the series. And I, I felt that I had arrived at a point in my life where I'd kind of come full circle. I was extremely interested in science, geology and astronomy and meteorites as a kid. And then I got very involved in rock and roll and played professionally for many years and was still doing expeditions and trying to balance all of it. And then when I moved out to Tucson, which was now almost nine years ago, and the Aerolite Meteorites Company grew rapidly, I felt that I was disconnected a bit from music. And then I've started playing in a band here again occasionally. So there is a... Um, there's a subtext of music that runs through the entire book. It's primarily about my passion for meteorites and, and my love of adventuring around the world, trying to find them. But there is also another facet of my life that viewers of the television show perhaps are not aware of. And music has been a great inspiration to me and a, and a driving force in my life. And so one of my missions was to try and reconcile these two halves of my life, the musician and the meteorite hunter and science writer. And I'm at a, I'm at a very happy point in my life. I've had time to write. I'm 
thrilled to be living in the Southwest. The television show has been very successful. And it's strange. It's one of those kind of art, artistic moments where I just felt this is the time to publish it. And yes, there will be more stories, but I've been working on it for so long. I, I wanted to put it out into the world and get feedback and then look at the next project. I didn't want to wait till I was 90 to write my memoir. I'd be <laughs> sitting there with a scratchy pen going, oh, I can't remember. What was that bloke's name? What I used to be. It was really funny. So, yeah, there, there's a need, I think, sometimes to 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 capture the moments and put the ideas down while they're fresh, which which I've done uh, in many cases in the new book. But also one of my favorite sections is a description of an expedition I went on in 1999. It was the first time I went to Russia and I went to the Popigai crater in northern Siberia with Roy Gallant, who is a, an amazing science writer and astronomer, adventurer, yes. planetarium director, one of my heroes. And I'd been reading his work for years, and he invited me to go on this expedition with him, which was definitely one of the great adventures of my life. And Roy and I were both writing for the same magazine at the time, and he is a very accomplished writer, wonderful writer. And when we were in Russia, I said to Roy, so um, I'm assuming you're going to write the tale of our expedition for the magazine. And he goes, oh, yes, well, my dear boy, I, 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 w I will if you don't mind. And I said, no, Roy, you should. You're, it's your expedition. So that was 1999. And I actually never wrote those chapters until this year. And I, it was one of the few expeditions where I kept a journal, a handwritten journal. And I went back to it and read the whole journal and thought, good Lord, you were completely mad going on that expedition. It was my first reaction. And then all the memories flooded back. And so it was one of those rare instances where I, I wrote an account of something that had happened in my past quite, quite some years ago. And one of the ways I, I get myself back into the moment is by looking at photographs from the expedition. I'm a very visual person. So when I put the photographs up on the computer screen or rummage through scrapbooks, I go, oh, yeah, there is Valeri with his gigantic rock pick. And that was the day we almost lost one of the rubber dinghies on the river. So that was a very interesting experience for me to go back and, and write something from earlier days. So has that inspired you at all? Like, have you, um, since these journals, obviously you were thrilled to be able to actually read that. Has that inspired you at all to maybe start journaling as you go? So, you know, the next volume will uh, have more like, you know, from that time sources for you? Yes, it has. And I do try diligently to keep a journal when I'm on the road. And every time a, a new expedition's on the horizon, a big expedition, I go, okay, Jeff, this is going to be the one. You're going to write this fantastic journal, and it's really going to be in the moment, and you'll be able to use it later. And the reality of it is, especially when we're on the road filming, I'm so tired by the time I get back to the hotel room or tent. <laughs> that usually the best I can do is, is just to make some notes, some brief notes. But I found those notes to be extremely helpful. And it's easy in the moment to go, oh, yeah, I remember we found this meteorite at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday in Poland. But then <laughs> a few months have gone by, and then you've gone to Russia and back to Poland and Sweden and Canada and back to the States, and then all these other things have happened. It's very easy to go, wait, what was that bit? At least for me. So, yes, I do try 
to make notes as I go, particularly dates when things happened and, and names of people that we met and the weights of meteorites and all those things that can just fly out of your mind easily over time. And I wish I had the focus to be a journal writer, a, a diligent journal writer and, and record thoughts every day. And I have a couple of friends who are and have been doing this for decades. And I find it very admirable but I'm not sure I have the patience for it. I do try. <laughs> what about in your younger days? Like you, in the book you talk about, you know, a lot about your early on life. How much of that was memory or, and how much of it did you actually write down? The, the early sections from my, my childhood in London and going to school and the band days and going through the punk rock scene in London, that was all from memory. I don't have any notes at all. I didn't keep any journals during that period of my life. And there are precious few photographs, really. And a remarkable thing happened. I, I was almost finished with the book and I was doing the design and, and selecting photos and working with my editors. And my great friend, Neil Gaiman, the science fiction and fantasy writer who wrote the introduction, said, hey, have you seen the photos? And a whole bunch of photographs of us taken in 1978, our band, because Neil and I were in the same band back in the punk days, a little known fact, surfaced. And we, we'd actually, one of the guys had reconnected with our photographer, Nick Harmon, who had taken these amazing pictures all over London on one summer afternoon. And I had copies of a few of them, but it was amazing timing because I got to go and look at these photographs and go, oh, wow, yeah, I remember that. And, oh, look at that, the crazy outfits we were wearing and that guitar. So it, it's something that I notice, and of course, many people have commented on this, but the memories of youth, I think, particularly in your teens, are very vibrant. And so I had no difficulty recalling these incidents, whereas I might have been a bit foggy on a few things that happened last year. But maybe that was just the travel. Something that I, w I was thinking about, how does one make the, the transition from, you know, uh, you know, a music career, you know, uh, you know, a budding musician and, and looking like things might crystallize with that to all of a sudden becoming a, a, a meteorite hunter? And I, the, the, it just seems to be a little bit of a stretch. And I'm just wondering, how could you walk us through the transition a little bit? And my bandmates love to tease me about this very issue in in my teens and 20s, when I, when I was working full-time professionally in rock and roll bands, I still had my fascination for science, and I still went to the museums, and I always, there's a, there's a mention in the book that even though I was very immersed in, in the rock and roll scene and traveling with the band and recording and so on, I still always had a rock hammer in the back of my car, and I, I always go, oh, look, there's a new geological map of this area that's been published, and I'd go out rock hounding, but the band took precedence during those days. Right. But remember that I, I played professionally for over 20 years. It was a long period of time. And as, as time went by, we lost some, some bandmates that we, that we cared about. A, a, a couple of people passed away, and, and some of the pivotal figures in my music career moved to other countries. So there, there came a point where I felt... The, the band lifestyle and the the meteorite hunting and my adventuring were were not going to be able to coexist anymore. And right. this I vividly remember in 1997 when I was recording 
my second album with Latch, my lead singer from New York, who's an amazing musician and very famous guy who is the founder of the anti-folk movement. We recorded this album. It, it was the best album we ever made. We, we went on to make others, but I thought that was the best. And in, in the spring of 97, we're mixing the album in New York. And I was off to Chile with Steve. It was my very first expedition with Steve. And I remember being thrilled to be in the Atacama Desert with Steve and hunting for meteorites. But in the back of my mind, I was going, oh, I'm missing the mixing sessions as well. I wonder what they're going to do. And they did a great job. But that was really the point when I, I realized it was not fair to my bandmates to continue because they were all career musicians. They didn't have another interest or another passion that, that pulled them. So in, in, the, in, in the late 90s, I started to move away from it a bit. I still, I still continue to play, but, but when I moved out to Tucson in 2004, that was, that was really the big break. And, and that was when I, I put all of my energy into meteorites instead of just half of it. So music has sort of joyfully and in, in a non-pressure way resurfaced in my life. Is that part of the reason maybe then why you have some song lyrics, specifically some of the ones from the bands that you were in at the start of each chapter? Yes, it is. And this undercurrent of, of music hopefully permeates through the book. But I didn't want it to be a rock and roll book. That's another book. There's a whole other book about the rock and roll years, which which hopefully will will live one day. But I felt it important to to talk about my background, that I, I'm, I'm not just a science guy. I've, I've had a career in art, I've had a career in music, and I feel that my, my different interests have, have worked together for the most part beautifully. And certainly my, my background as an art director and a photographer and a science writer have really helped me with my meteorite work. Have you ever felt any pressure from, like, well, I mean, you mentioned it with the bands back in the day, but have you ever felt pressure from people like, you should just be 100% focused on one thing, you shouldn't, you're like, you're, you'll be a jack of all trades otherwise, and, uh, like, have you ever felt any pressure that way? I have, and my, my wonderful mother, who passed away in 1998, was a great supporter of mine, and I would never have embarked upon this unusual and, and rewarding career in, in science and art-related matters if it weren't for my mother's support. But she was very aware of the fact that I was interested in so many different things, and she would try and encourage me to just focus on, on one. But I think that having a background of different disciplines enriches your life. And if I hadn't spent those years working as an art director, and if I hadn't gone to art school, and if I hadn't spent all these years as a science writer, my, my new book, Rockstar, would not be what it is today. And I was also pressured to go with a big publisher with the book, and I didn't want to. I've spent so long working on it that I wanted it to be my vision. And I, I don't mean to sound like a megalomaniac, but no, when, no. I put, when I put 14 years into something, I'm not going to have a big publisher go, yeah, we're just going to slap this cover on it. Yeah, it's just kind of a photo of a meteor or a comet or something. That'll be fine. Right, I, and this I, is I, the right time for doing things in different ways anyway. I mean, you kind of hit on a, a great moment in the publishing world where it's becoming much more democratized. Oh, definitely. And, and I've talked about this in my blog, The Logical Lizard, because I, I, I write a science and arts blog. And I wrote a piece called 
how punk rock led me down the garden path to the joys and perils of self-publishing. And, <laughs> and I am an, an unashamed punk rocker. I'm a product of, of the punk movement. And in the 1970s in the UK, when, when the early punk bands were unable to get signed for the most part from major labels, mm -hmm. they said, well, forget about that then. We're just going to put out our own records. And so you saw Stiff Records and Chiswick and a lot of these little indie, the first it was, real Yeah, it's the beginning of the small right. indie. It was. And not only in music, but in publishing. Because mm -hmm. the fanzine had its birth, had its genesis in punk rock. And right. the very, very first true. recognized fanzine was published in the 70s in the UK by a guy who was crazy about punk rock music and he wanted to get the word out. And so he just wrote a few things and stole some photos and photocopied it and sold it for 10 P or whatever at gigs. And other people said, Oh wow, I can do that. And I firmly believe that the independent music business and the independent publishing business have their roots in that do it yourself mentality from, from the punk days. If, Absolutely. If, if, because if before it, the only people who tried doing things like that were people who already had success in the traditional industry. Exactly. Hey Jeff, you, you've you've kind of really had a whole set of adventures and and so on. Uh, I ever think of making the jump over to fiction and creating a character through all of your adventures and so on. I have. I'm glad you brought that up. When I first started writing seriously, I wrote science fiction, and that was my great interest. And I, I remain a, a devotee of science fiction um, to this day. And so actually my very first published piece was a science fiction story called Return Post that was published in a science fiction magazine in New York in the late 90s called Offworld. And I, I have written a lot of other science fiction, but I, I came to the realization for myself that I was more interested in, in nonfiction. I, although I enjoy reading fiction, I find the real world so much more interesting for the most part than the made up world. And I'm talking about books here. I I'm, I'm a great cinema fan and I love science fiction films and action films more than perhaps documentaries. But at, at this point in my life, recounting the things that have happened to me is, is what interests me the most. However, I thought it would be very interesting a to revisit some of the science fiction that I wrote back in the 90s that hasn't been published, and maybe do something with that. And I've actually been doing that. I've been rereading some of the stories, some of which are horrible and some of which are not too bad. <laughs> and I also thought it would be very amusing to write a novel based on my experiences in television. And oh, that, boy. That is something else that, that, that we may see. Indeed. In the future. And I've actually written notes and I have characters and and it would be inspired by events. But and it would not take place in the meteorite world, but something kind of similar. And I'm actually very excited about this project. So I'll keep you posted on that. It's a very it's a very interesting question. So to bring us a little bit back to reality, if you will, we had a really interesting event happen last, or should I say early this morning, or last night, depending on where you live. Uh, Jeff, you're, you're you know, a geologist um, and part of uh, the Mars Science Laboratory's mission is a geology mission. What sort of excites you about what Curiosity may go ahead and find in the Gale Crater region? 
Well, first of all, I, I have to just I have to quote this one line that's in, in the in the Reuters article from today. And it says, asked at an afternoon briefing if anything had yet gone wrong, mission manager Jennifer Trosper replied simply, no. Yes. And isn't that magnificent? <laughs> exactly. And and wow, the photos and the footage at mission control. I mean, yeah. doesn't that just make you want to be in the space program when you see how excited these people were, and some of them have been working on this for eight years. It, it's a, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic moment, and I, I really send my congratulations to everyone involved. And I know we have similar views on this, and we wish that we had a more vigorous space program, and, and we wish we had manned spaceflight and all these other things that we could talk about that all night. But this is a triumph, and it's good for us. It's good for the nation, and it's good for the space program, and it's good for all people to see that we can still do it. We can still do something magnificent, even though it's been so long since the last Apollo mission and that we don't have the shuttles anymore. But there still is a space program, and that is something to be thankful for. So Yeah, that's... I wonder how many people basically discovered yesterday that NASA still exists. <laughs> and, I mean, seriously, what a triumph. It's yeah. not just, you know, it's not just any old thing. The, the technological wonder employed in getting that vehicle onto the surface in one piece, I just find it magnificent. I'm, I'm so proud that we as a nation and, and the world collectively can still embark upon such endeavors when so many people are worried about the economy and, and world hunger and world peace and we have so many other issues to contend with. The focus and dedication that it takes to realize that dream is extraordinary. And, and we should we should remember that it's something we should all feel good about. So that that's the nebulous part, the, the concrete part. How exciting that we've got we've got a robot there now, a very sophisticated robot that's going to look for things. Who can imagine what it might find? I'm frequently asked about the the life in meteorites theory, and do I believe that Allen Hills eight four zero zero one the Antarctic meteorite that supposedly has fossilized bacteria in it. Do I believe that's the real thing? I don't know. The jury's still out. Some scientists feel yes, definitely. And some specialists say, no, it's not. It was caused by water percolation. But sooner or later, we're going to find definite proof. It may not be in our lifetimes. I hope it is. But sooner or later, because we know there's life out there. This, this, isn't, this isn't a cause for debate amongst us, right? I'm right. not saying there's life in the solar system, but there's life somewhere. Right, we, right. We'd be idiots to think that it, with the multitude of galaxies and solar systems out there with their own asteroid belts and their own planets, we'd, we'd be foolish to think that life hadn't evolved. And it might be extremely different, might be more primitive. I'm not really expecting an Independence Day scenario where 15 mile wide <laughs> ships land here. But, <laughs> but it, I, I don't doubt for a moment that there are sophisticated civilizations out there. There just has to be. It's statistics, if nothing else. One thing I learned is you can't argue with statistics. It just doesn't work. Yeah, and like uh, the line from the movie version of Contact of uh, it'd be an awful waste of space. It just seems oh, illogical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's super. That, it's a great bit in a great movie. Yeah. And, and I think one of the really interesting things about the current mission is is this feeling that that Mount Sharp may contain ancient sedimentary records from Mars. And mm -hmm. so if there were 
ancient life forms. And I'm thinking probably if there is anything, it's going to be primitive. It's going to be basic. It might be bacteria level. Who knows? But that's a great place to look. And again, the audacity, the boldness in going there. They didn't land in an easy place. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminds me of the later Apollo missions when there was so much debate over, well, should we just get the guys down safely and have them walk around on the moon and collect a few rocks? Or are we going to take a risk and are we going to land at the more difficult places where we might actually find something and that paid off? And, and isn't that what's best in humans? That we go, yes, let's, let's do the difficult thing. Let's do the risky thing. Because if it works and we get our rover there near these could-be fossilized sedimentary layers, we might really find something literally earth-shaking. Sort of a follow-up, and I'm one who would, by the way, be very disappointed if we didn't find any fossilized life. But what if, if curiosity, and I'm going to go really out on a limb here, find something that might resemble fossilized life. What do you think that's going, going to do for the overall you know, Mars program or for the overall space program in general? I hope it makes people wake up and go, wow, oh, geez, we're missing the boat here. The space program is important. And I realize that we have problems at home and we have problems in the world, but that doesn't make it okay to not embark upon these voyages of discovery. And I think a significant find on this mission or a later mission will hopefully increase funding and increase public awareness. And if if the average guy in the street realizes that there was once life on our neighboring planet, I hope he would want to learn more. I would. If they find something spectacular, the first question I'm going to ask is, when are we going to send another ship up there? I've asked this question before of of several other individuals who are artists in their own right. And, uh, uh, well, a a lady by the name of uh, Greta Holby posed this question to uh, Leland Melvin, oddly enough, at the launch of uh, the Mars Science Laboratory. There was a a session there called Why Mars Excites Us. And she proposed that... Uh, you know, STEM, which is, you know, science, you know, all the, the science technologies, engineering, mathematics areas. Well, STEM should be called STEAM. There should be an A somewhere in there for the arts. Uh, just want to get your thoughts on that. Do you think all of that can just live mutually, you know, mutually together and there should be an emphasis, you know, a good balanced approach in the educational system for science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and again, the arts, that all of them can, can go ahead and sort of live peacefully in, in, a, in a curriculum, that's one, and two, that the arts could make a, indeed a contribution to, uh, to the sciences and to the, uh, the other disciplines as well. I was just, just wanted to get your thoughts on that. There, there's a lot of great stuff there, Gene, and I, I, will, I will begin my answer with a, with, a, with a snippet from my own experience, and that was when I, when I went to art school in New York. I went to the School of Visual Arts in 1983, I enrolled. And this is after coming from a, from a very strict British school that had a very hardcore science background. And at my British school, they did not allow you to study in later years art and science. You had to pick a discipline and stick with it. Huh. And I think that's wrong. A wider experience builds a better person. But specifically, when I enrolled in the School of Visual Arts, I had a, a class of 24 people. We were all freshmen. 
And it was a very international group. We had students from all over the world. And most of us were, were a little bit older for, for whatever reason. I, I was almost 24 when I decided to go to college. So you have a lot of very focused young artists in their early 20s entering this four-year program. And the first year, we had to take a foundation program, which meant wide exposure to all of the visual arts. So we did figure painting, drawing, sculpture, graphic arts, art history, you name it. And quite a few of the artists were, were a bit annoyed about this. And, and I remember this, this one lady in particular, and she goes, well, I, I'm only interested in sculpture. I only want to do sculpture. I don't want to do anything else. It's my passion in life. So we spend a year together with this class being exposed to all these different disciplines, working in the dark room, working with clay and doing classical painting and everything else. And at the end of the foundation year, almost half of the people in my class had changed their their major. And so the lady who wanted to be a sculptor went on to be a brilliant photographer because she had been exposed to photography. So if we're not exposed to these disciplines, how can we know? And I do not think that disciplines should be should be stringently separate separated especially for young people if you don't have the chance to look at things and say well i might like to be an artist or i might like to be a scientist how will you know and if you don't have the chance to discover these things for yourself and make your own way i think it leads to unhappiness in careers in later life and in, in my work, I, I meet a lot of people and they go, you're so lucky that you get to do what you love. And I said, yes, I know. I'm lucky. I'm very grateful. I also worked at it. It didn't <laughs> just fall in my lap. This, this was a long journey that I went on, working in the music world, working in the art world, working as a geologist, studying all these different disciplines. And, and fortunately for me, in my case, they kind of came together at the end. And I use my art background every day. I still do promotion daily for for the Meteorite Men's Show and for my company, Aerolite Meteorites, and, and the books and the other projects, the other science projects that I'm working on. If I didn't have that art background and if I didn't have the writing background and all the other things, I don't feel that I would have been able to achieve these things. And rock and roll as well. I there there's a, there's a bit, it's right at the beginning of the book, in, in, in the thank yous. And, and I say that I felt rock and roll prepared me for television because if you can entertain a crowd of, of intoxicated punk rockers in a nightclub <laughs> without getting beaten up, then mm -hmm. you can probably do that on television as well. So <laughs> I, I've had a fairly unusual life and, and, and some people might think I'm a bit of an oddball, which I would agree with, but I, I feel strongly that had I not been exposed to all of these different influences, I wouldn't have been able to complete the journey. So my, that was a very long-winded answer. But yes, I think students, especially young students, should be allowed to embrace multiple disciplines so that they can experience these things and decide for themselves what fires their passion. And, and where would we be if, if Einstein hadn't been able to, to, to study physics? And, and if, if our astronauts hadn't had the opportunity to, to join the Navy or go to flight school. If I could just jump in on this, um, 
there is no such thing as art without science. They go hand in hand. Um, every single art involves a science, whether you're talking music is physics, painting is chemistry. A lot of what Jeff learned in that first year would have actually been science, but just not in a traditional classical education science setting. So you really, you can't separate them. And why should we? What possible purpose is there for for delineating these disciplines? I, I just don't get it. And I, Especially I come... since we now know that learning the arts and learning to play an instrument actually makes you a better math and science student. It sounds like a win-win situation. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I come from a background where this is normal to say, no, you can't study these multiple disciplines mm-hmm. once you're past the age of 14 or 16. This, this was in the UK, and maybe it's, maybe it's changed a bit. But I do know that in a lot of, a lot of strict schools, there is this push to get kids who are good at one thing to just do that. It's very competitive. Oh, we've got early computer school for these kids. And yes, it's all good to, to encourage abilities that you see. But there's no excuse for failing to introduce our young students to the wonders of art. It just makes you a better person. And it adds enjoyment and beauty to your life. And anyone who thinks that arts funding is a waste of time or misguided is the misguided person. Art here, and music bring, bring joy and wonder into our lives. It can't be all work. There has to be the beautiful mysticism of staring into a painting that you love or listening to Mozart or whatever it is that moves you. And again, if we don't expose young people to these things during their formative years, they won't know and they won't seek them out in later years. Going totally off topic. <laughs> since I can't come up with a nice transition. <laughs> I'm for something completely different. And yes, that, that works. Yes. <clears throat> Which just insert the John Cleese thing right here. <laughs> yes. And now, and now back something to the studio. Yes. When it comes to, you know, actually searching for the meteorites, I mean, you've been to the Arizona deserts and summer at noon, and then again, you've been to... Uh, like the Atacama Desert in the freezing cold or up in Siberia. Do you have a preference of whether you hunt in the extreme heat or the freezing cold? Oh, that's a good one. I've never been asked that before. Wow, that's a difficult question because I do like the desert gear, if we're being completely frank here, which, of course, I would be with my talking space friends. (laughs) I like wearing the combat boots or the snake boots and the ranger vests and the cowboy hat and all that. And I, I moved out to the desert for a reason. <laughs> the wardrobe? Yeah. No, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean, the spectacular, well, all right, maybe a bit. The, the spectacular landscape and, and the, the abundance of sunshine and wildlife that we have here. And when you're hunting in extreme cold weather conditions, there is a lot of extra stuff you have to carry. And particularly when we were when we were in Chile, as he mentioned, Sawyer, when when we were filming season two of Meteorite Men, it was it was their winter. And we were at varying altitudes between eight and eleven thousand feet in the winter. And it was eight degrees Fahrenheit. So I'm wearing my thermal underwear and then my regular 
army pants and then sweatpants on top of that and then a sweater and one jacket and then my parka and two pairs of gloves and goggles and a balaclava and a hood and two pairs of socks <laughs> and when i when i got back to the tent i i went through this weird ritual and i i thought how many pieces of clothing am I actually wearing? And I took everything off in the tent and counted it, and I was wearing 37 pieces of clothing. <laughs> and I mean, that's just ridiculous. I felt like the Michelin tire man <laughs> lumbering around. Although, one thing about hunting at altitude is you just lose so much moisture into the atmosphere. It's so dry there. There's, there's, I mean, it's it probably as close to zero humidity as anywhere I've ever been. And we, we were traveling with a, with a mountaineering expert and, and he said, you've, you've got to, you've got to drink however many liters of water per person per day. And so my, my standard is if, if you're in the desert, you're hunting, it's uh, two liters of water per person. And he goes, no, no, it has to be three times that you have to all drink at least six liters of water per person per day. That's the minimum. And I thought, Good Lord, that's a lot. We'll have to have a truck just to carry the water for 14 people on the crew. And then he was constantly going around going, have you, have you had some water? Have some water. And he was going around handing out these bottles every five or ten minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, could, it could get a bit awkward with all the gear on. But luckily, you lose most of your moisture just out into the atmosphere. So, wow, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> it, it, if I had to do either or, I'd, I'd go with the desert hunting. Because... I mean, if you get really hot, you can always take off a layer. But when you're in, in the extreme cold weather situations, there gets to be a point where you just can't put on another layer. There's, there's no jacket that's big enough to, get to go on top of another one. <laughs> but does either one offer a better chance at meteorites? Do you make the sacrifice of you know clothing and temperature versus the find? It really depends. I mean, I'll go where the meteorites are. And when we were when we were picking locations or, or discussing locations for the, for the various seasons, it was really a question of, well, where can we go where we have the best chance of finding something that's also going to be a visually interesting episode? And so the mountains in Chile are pretty spectacular and the desert out here is pretty spectacular as well. But I, I would venture almost anywhere. I, I haven't, I don't think the occasions presented itself yet where I go, no, nah, I'm not going to make that trip. It's it's too harsh or it's too dangerous. There there are definitely instances where somebody wouldn't let me go, and there there were some some locations that we proposed for meteorite men that were just regarded as too dangerous, and we <laughs> we, we weren't allowed to do it. So probably it was probably a good uh, instance of of um, reason prevailing over an impetuous nature. But if you could, like, get rid of all, like, say, politics and whatever, if you could go absolutely anywhere and hunt that you can't currently go, where would it be? I would love to go to the Wabar Crater in, in the empty quarter of, of Saudi Arabia. And it's one of the very few craters where meteorites have been found. It's extremely remote and difficult to get to. And the, the temperatures there are very, very high, dangerously high. But it's also a sand crater. It was an iron meteorite that landed in the desert, and there's a spectacular crater there, partly filled with sand dunes. And, and some amazing irons have been found, and also what they call wabar pearls, which are an impact glass. That's the sand that was melted by the heat and fury of the impact. And unlike some of the other impact glasses we've seen, like Libyan desert glass and Moldavites, they're, they're little round beads. They, they, they almost do look like pearls. 
So I, I would like to see that. That's high on my list. If you know anyone in Saudi Arabia, who you know, with your limitless network of contacts. <laughs> in fact, if anyone's listening in Saudi Arabia and you can hook that up, just go to meteoritemen.com and drop me a line and we'll, we'll be out to see you. It'll be amazing. You get to ride camels and everything. <laughs> I'll be sure to send out a letter. Okay, thanks very much for that. Well, on a similar kind of note here, you know, obviously you go out and you do the hunting and that's a big part of it. But the other big part of it is the going out and the socializing and showing people that you're not just a TV figure, but you actually exist and are a human being. <laughs> Is there, oh, I'm glad you think so. Thank you. Is there any events in particular, no bias needed? I know, because I know what our answers would probably be. Yeah, but, we have proof of this, by the way. But okay. But is there any uh, gathering or special meetup that you personally enjoy going to? Any one or couple that you personally enjoy? Well, there, there have been so many great events over the years. And, and you know, I, I love going to the Northeast Astronomy Forum in, in New York because I get to hang out with you guys and, and your friends. And, and that is a wonderful social experience for me. I, I have to say, I've been to some particularly amazing events this year. And Space Fest 4 here in Tucson this spring was an extraordinary event. And I think I think we had 14, 14 astronauts or 16 astronauts. And numerous moonwalkers, and I, I got to chat with with Buzz Aldrin and Alan Bean, and it, it was it was miraculous for me to be in the presence of so many great people who who had travelled beyond the confines of, of our planet. And one of the things that struck me is how personable and approachable they are. And I I couldn't help but feel some sympathy also because. I know how many times I've been asked, well, Jeff, how do you know that there are meteorites or how do you, how do you find them or are they radioactive? And, and you, you do get asked the same questions and, and that's fine. People are interested. They want to learn. But I was looking at Buzz Aldrin and I was thinking, God, poor old Buzz, you know, he's still got a smile on his face and he's <laughs> been asked the same question probably every day of his life since 1969, <laughs> which is what's it like to go into space? And, and, and how, how, how many times can you think of a different way to give the answer so that was wonderful and space fest 5 will be in may of next year may of 2013 in tucson arizona at the star pass resort and i highly recommend any of your listeners who are space program enthusiasts and would like to spend some some real time with with these these wonderful people who helped shape our our destiny to, to go to it and it's held at a beautiful hotel it's very friendly and what one of one of the treats of the year for me and then i should mention that in in the early summer of this year we went to roswell new mexico for the science fiction film festival and that was brilliant i love roswell it's a really interesting town it's got some beautiful old buildings and then of course it's got the ufo history and in Roswell, they call the 1947 crash of whatever it was the incident, which, which, which I love because you, you're, you're talking to people who live there and they hear about it all the time. And there's the UFO research center there and their gift shop selling 
alien mugs and alien <laughs> shot glasses and t-shirts and, and I got an alien bobblehead that's on my bar. <laughs> really fantastic. That that made my day. So you don't know. Do, do you say, well, um, you know, I'm interested in hearing more about that 1947 um, crash of the weather balloon, UFO, experimental, secret, stealth bomber, or whatever it was, and they go, we just call it the incident. So, <laughs> okay, well, well, that, that, keeps it, that keeps it easy. Because one thing I have to say is that, you know, meeting you at Neef was just, you know, <laughs> you just give off that persona of as many people as you see come up to your booth that every single one of them is just the greatest person in the world. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you. And, you know, Sawyer, it goes back to something that happened to me when, when, I, when I was quite young. And in, over the years, I've met a lot of celebrities, a lot of movie stars and rock and roll stars and famous artists and so on. And, you know, they're, they're people. They, they have good days and bad days and have problems and triumphs just like the rest of us. And I think when, when we meet a celebrity, we expect them to just be magnificent all the time. <laughs> and... There have been instances when I, I've met someone whom I had greatly admired over the years and he was having an off day or he was just a mean person in real life. And, and I had a kind of an unhappy moment. Very rarely. It's only happened a couple of times. But you don't forget that. I, I always look back and I go, yeah, you know, I met that guy who's one of my heroes and, you know, he really wasn't very nice. Just kind of completely blew me off. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to do that. I don't care how tired I am or what a bad day I've had, people have made a trip to come out and see me and look at meteorites and ask me a question. And it's, it's of paramount importance to me to always be accessible and kind to the viewers. They, they are making an effort to support what I'm doing. And if I don't have the time to chat with someone who's made the trip out to see me, I shouldn't be doing it. That, that's great. And that says a lot about, because um, I know you're very accessible, like on social media, um, you know, I see you answering questions all the time, you know, whenever you can get on there, um, it, it all fits together. Um, and uh, do you think that's been a large part of the success of the show? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> I, you're welcome. I, I learned early on in television that most shows don't get a whole lot of promotion time. And it's not because anyone's not doing their job. It's because they're only finite resources. Mm -hmm. And so every year there are new shows that come out and they, the network tends to, to pick a couple of shows and, and really promote them for their first season. And we were very lucky that we, we were science channels, one of science channels, big shows that year for our first season and mm -hmm. there were a lot of interviews and there was a lot of media and then in season two and season three it tailed off and it's not because they didn't like us it's because they had other shows and and there are only so many hours in the day so i took over as best i could and and i hired my own publicist and as you know i'm very active on on facebook and twitter and and now we're on google plus and even pinterest so Yes, I think it's part of it. And I don't mean to blow my own horn here, but I am a musician and I know what it's like to interact with the fans. And I, again, I think that the rock and roll years served me very well because I think I know what 
the audience wants. And I, I don't mean in the program. I mean in person. They, mm-hmm. they want a moment. And when, when I've, I've met heroes of mine, I've always tried to think of something really clever to say. I didn't want to go out and go, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, meet some great hero of mine like Lou Reed and go, well, when's your next album coming out? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not what they want to hear. So I feel that all of my years of experience on stage and touring and, and working with large crowds and small crowds instructed me in, in various things that are good to do and some things that are not good to do. So I think that our availability and our, our visibility in, in social media has helped the show. And yes, I do take the time to answer Facebook questions from people who think they've found a meteorite or have a question about a metal detector. And, and again, if you don't have time to do that, I don't think that you should be in the public eye. Mm-hmm. And I, I realize that, that Harrison Ford doesn't have time to answer questions about some filming detail of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but we can still manage it. And, and I, I do have a staff that helped me. And over the years, as best I know, we've answered every single email that we've received. Wow. And we're, we're talking in the mega thousands here. And I, I know when I was a kid and I had movie star heroes and comic book heroes and I'd, I'd write to the artists and I, I never heard back. And I thought, well, maybe they're not real people. And I didn't want that to happen to us. We've inspired a lot of people to go out and look for meteorites. And so I think it's unfair to plant the seed and then not be there to water it. So people watch the show and they go, wow, I want to try that. And they go out and they find a volcanic rock or a a bit of runoff from an old smelter or something. They're very excited because it sticks to a magnet. And then they rush back and they post a photo or email us a photo. and, And I hate to deliver bad news, but it's it is part of my job to go, well, you've got a good eye you know that's the kind of thing we're looking for it was dark it stuck to a magnet keep going they're out there there's one out there with your name on it it's important to to encourage people the the show has has sparked a passion for adventure and discovery in so many people and and what a privilege so if i then just disappear and go well you know watch the show or buy the book i don't think that's enough so it is one of my missions as best I can with my limited time to be available and, and help people in their own voyage of discovery. And if, if people hadn't helped me along the way when I was a kid and when I was first starting to look for fossils and getting interested in science, I didn't get what I needed from my teachers. So if people hadn't come forward, um, a, a geology enthusiast here and a fossil hunter there, if they hadn't taken the time to instruct me and go, no, look, that's not a fossil. That's actually a piece of limestone. <laughs> I never would have been able to get there. And it's, I know it, it, it sounds a bit whimsical, but I really believe in, in the idea of paying it back. And a lot of people helped me. And a lot of people were very patient with me when I was learning, when I was a novice. So I would like as best I can to pass that on to the next generation of enthusiasts. So, so they have a chance to go out and, and discover something wonderful and amazing. That will, that will bring light into their lives. And I think that note is a perfect time for the last and final question. Are you prepared for it? 
Yes, Captain, I am. All right, because this is always the most difficult question that we ask every single guest who appears on our show. And you've been asked this twice. So it's the <laughs> third time. <laughs> but we never know if the answer may change, especially with new information out. So if people want to get in contact with you like that, or if they want to find out more about you or buy your amazing new book, where can they do that? Well, thank you, Sawyer. And we, we have several websites, and I, I would encourage people who enjoy the television show to go to meteoritemen.com, where uh, both of my books can be purchased. And my company is Aerolite Meteorites, and we are aerolite.org. That's A-E-R-O-L-I-T-E dot org. And we are Meteorite Men on Twitter, on Facebook, on Google+, and on Pinterest, send us a hello. I actually do our Twitter and Facebook myself. And it's very time consuming, but if you have a question or a brainwave, or if you think you know where the next meteorite might fall through some <laughs> miracle of prescience, <laughs> please, please let me know. And I'm, I'm serious when I say that I love to interact with the viewers. And especially if people have comments or feedback about the book. I've been working on it for 14 years. I like it, but that doesn't mean anyone else is going <laughs> to like it. <laughs> and which, actually, I'll, I'll add one more thing, if I may, Sawyer, which is I, I recently became active on goodreads.com, which is a fantastic website. It's a, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit like a combination of sort of Facebook and Netflix for book enthusiasts. And, and I think it's encouraging people to read, which is, which is a wonderful thing. And I'm a Goodreads author. You can just do a search for, for Jeffrey Notkin. And, and all throughout the summer, I'm giving away a free signed copy of Rockstar every week just through my, my Goodreads account. So people can, it's free to sign up. It's a great website, very informative. You can rate books and find out what your friends are reading. It's, it's actually got an intellectual element to it that I, that I enjoy very much. And that's probably about it, unless anyone's come up with yet another social media platform just today, which is possible. <laughs> but one thing I do have to say is that the pieces that you guys sell are amazing. I mean, we purchased one from you for my mother, and she hasn't taken it off. She absolutely adores it. Oh, fantastic. It was a necklace, actually, and she I remember. loves it. That was when you visited the Aerolite Meteorites offices. That that was a day we shall always um, cherish in our memories. Oh, it's, the, it's your offices. Some, those are some of the most gorgeous pieces you have. And like, for example, the, the elephant one, that is just the coolest. Yeah, that that, that remains a favorite. And it's not, not the largest meteorite I found and certainly not the most valuable. But it was it was the one that meant the most to me. And I, I think it's because I loved Australia so much and I had dreamed of going to the Henbury Craters for, I don't know, almost 20 years. And, and to have exclusive permission from the Australian Park Service to hunt there for a few days and, and collect meteorites when I, when I then found an astonishing piece there in addition to just having the chance to see this geological and, and, and meteoritic wonder, that, that capped the whole the whole adventure for me. It's actually sitting in my cabinet right here. I can see it from here. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell it that you said hi. 
<laughs> yes, please do. I will. It's getting that's bizarre, right? I'll pick up. <laughs> oh, it's just on the Skype call with Sawyer. Remember Sawyer from Talkie Space? I know he's a fantastic. Guy. Yeah, he asked me to say hi. Oh, and people think my meteorite hugging is weird. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and what kind of voice would a meteorite have if it? I just I would immediately went into a squeaky voice. Yeah, yeah. Tell Sawyer I said hi. <laughs> I think it would entirely depend on the meteor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It depends on the one. I think. It, it could well be. Well, look, there's an interesting research topic that will combine both art and science. <laughs> we would love you send send your thoughts to Jeff. Go ahead and send those. And, <laughs> I think we'd all love to hear those. Oh, I definitely would. <laughs> the enthusiasm spreads to all of us just talking with you. Jeff Notkin, thank you so much for joining us. It is always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. And of course, thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Sawyer, thanks a lot. Always a great time to have uh, Jeff Notkin on the show, and uh, doors always open for him. It was a fun evening. Indeed, and thank you as well once again for helping us, Craftlass. Oh, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure with you guys, and uh, with Jeff, uh, it's just even more laughter always. So uh, thank you very much for having me. No problem. Thank you, Jeff, once again for making us have way too much fun here, even on the eve of curiosity especially considering that uh it landed about 24 hours ago and we probably haven't slept since then on this recording date but anyway we thank you once again for joining us after this long break and we hope you're still listening to us and we will return to regularly scheduled episodes starting next week so stay tuned for those but in the meantime i know it's been a while and i know you're missing out on this so as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are Thank you.